she never got the posthumous support to, that I can determine from the archive. I am convinced there are more Pearl White films extant than is even now believed. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. Adventure awaits in the world of vintage cinema. We're invited to a new film preservation festival coming in June. In April, two new silent film Kickstarters. And Pearl White is the best-remembered name in female serial adventure. A new biography separates fact from publicity. Don't feel like a log that's headed for the buzzsaw? Make sure you catch every episode of Nitrateville Radio by subscribing at the podcast app of your choice. Thanks. The Library of Congress has a new festival, and it is not the same as Mostly Lost, which we've talked about on this podcast before. Tell me the difference and what this new one's about. Well, the new festival is the Library of Congress Festival of Film and Sound. At the library, we have both a national collection of motion pictures, television, and recorded sound. And we wanted a name that covers all of that. And this first festival is certainly a bit stronger on the motion picture side, but there's quite a bit about uh, sound in motion pictures. And Mostly Lost went for eight years and was very successful. And coming out of COVID, we decided we wanted to, you know, rethink if we were doing a festival, um, you know, what we would do. So we're going to do this for a little while. And, uh, but it's, it's Mostly Lost was, when I talked to people about it, they say that what they really enjoyed was the audience uh, participation. So in thinking about this festival, we've come up with some ways to, to incorporate some audience participation in, in the uh, screening. That's David Pierce, Assistant Chief and Chief Operations Officer at the Library of Congress's National Audiovisual Conservation Center in Culpeper, Virginia talking about the new Library of Congress Festival of Film and Sound, which will have its inaugural weekend of programming June 15th through 18th in the D.C. area at the AFI Silver Theater in Silver Spring, Maryland. Yeah, and one thing that, that Rob Stone mentioned to me was that Mostly Lost was a workshop, and this is a festival. Definitely. The workshop meant that that the um, each weekend of Mostly Lost, there's about 12 hours of screening unidentified materials with members of the audience calling out their ideas of what it might be, or if they could identify people in the screen or locations. Others in the audience were looking up uh, information on their laptops, and there were some uh, experts there who also went in, and they had a, a very good success rate at identifying you know, fragments of features, uh, shorts that were missing their main titles and things like that. 
And there was also about 12 hours of presentations each weekend. And then there were screenings of restored films in the evenings. This is much more of a conventional film festival. Um, three and a half days of screenings with special guests in a theater and uh, where we're uh, selling a pass and people can see all of the films and see how the films, you know, reference each other and also get a chance to meet uh, fellow film fans. So I think we're, our festival is probably modeled a bit more along the Turner Classic Movies Festival in that we're showing mainstream movies for the most part, but trying to show good movies not rare movies, you know, not, <laughs> not, not like Cinefest where they're showing films just because they're rare, but uh, good films that are hard to see these days, uh, particularly in 35 millimeter. And films that you actually already know the names of. So <laughs> people don't have to guess what it is. Right. <laughs> yes. The other thing is that it's, it's in a, a much larger theater, so more people can come to it. Right. Right. We love the Packard Campus Theater at our facility in Culpeper, but it only seats 200 and mostly lost was uh, full every year, you know, six weeks or two months before the event. And we recognized if we were holding a mainstream event that we were just going to end up uh, frustrating a lot of people. So we've uh, partnered with the American Film Institute Theater in Silver String, Maryland, which is a wonderful a neighborhood restored neighborhood theater from 1938, and uh, it's a beautiful facility with uh, great 35 millimeter projection and digital projection. And best of all, you don't have to take a shuttle bus from the hotel. You don't have to, you know, take a shuttle bus to get to a restaurant. You don't all have to eat in a cafeteria. Right. <laughs> it's surrounded, surrounded by dozens of restaurants and many hotels in walking distance, including a uh, D.C. metro stop. Nice. And the AFI has a lot of festivals. They have you know, Latin American Film Festivals, African American Film Festivals. Every year, Eddie Muller and Foster Hirsch come for the Film Noir Festival. So we're glad that we can add another festival to their um, you know, event and that we can program and produce you know, a weekend of, of classic films. Well, let's talk about what the program is. Um, yeah, so the theme is kind of film and sound. Yeah, music and sound. You, okay. The actually, my idea for the theme came from the British Silent Film Weekend, which has been going for nearly twenty years, and they I attended that when I lived in the UK. They would have a theme for the weekend, and all the presentations and films would fit kind of loosely around the theme. And I thought that was nice. I don't really want to have a, you know, a theme of like World War II movies where you're sure. watching World War II movies for three and a half days. So I wanted something relatively loose that would uh, still somewhat connect the films together and also distinguish one year from the next. And uh, we'll, we're going to pull the audience on the, what they want next year's theme to be. But this year's theme is music and sound. So the music... We have the biographer of Bernard Herrmann and Max Steiner, Stephen Smith, coming, and he's going to give a presentation on Max Steiner. We're going to show a brand new 35 millimeter print of Melody Cruise, the RKO ah. <laughs> Mark Sandrich film from 1933. Uh, and we're also going to show UCLA's restoration of All That Money Can Buy, nice. with, uh, directed by William Dieterle, with the Academy Award winning score by Bernard Herrmann. So that's kind of what it means on music. And then when it comes to uh, sound, 
you know, where I was really happy that we can show Douglas Fairbanks, the last silent film, the Museum of Modern Art did a restoration a couple of years ago, which has not been widely seen. They went back to the original, I guess you'd call them Vitaphone discs, the movie tone score. And the film has three talking sequences in it. And even the photo play restoration, I think only had two. And that's the best edition of the film that's uh, exists, but it's not widely seen. And it's, as we know, Fairbanks is farewell to the silent cinema. And that'll be introduced by Tracy Gossel, who was the biographer of Douglas Fairbanks Sr. So we're getting and a, lot, then, a lot of Nitrateville yeah. radio guests on this, uh, at this <laughs> <Yes>. festival. <laughs> uh, it makes you wonder how large the field is. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. David, David Sten is coming down uh, from New York. And he's going to introduce uh, Deanna Durbin film, Spring Parade, which is the one title that's not available on DVD or has ever been broadcast. And uh, he got to know uh, Deanna Durbin when she lived outside of Paris. And he's going to talk about um, the time that he spent with her and her family. And then also introduce Clara Bow's Call Her Savage. And as we know, David Stan wrote a biography of Clara Bow as well as a biography of uh, Gene Harlow. Okay. And then one of my, uh, something I'm really looking forward to that the lab at the National Audiovisual Conservation Center is working on now is a 1931 Spanish language film called uh, Carnet de Cabaret, which is the Spanish language version of 10 Cents a Dance that starred Barbara Stanwyck. And this version uh, stars uh, Lupita Tovar, who we all remember from the Spanish language version of Dracula. Right, yes. And that will be introduced by Maria Elena de la Carreras, who is a professor at Cal State Northridge and an expert in Spanish language production in the United States. And she'll also be talking about some of our other films, which include stars like uh, Gilbert Rowland, the Mexican actor, and Atura de Cordova, um, also a Mexican actor who came to prominence in World War II when so many of the familiar actors were off uh, fighting right. uh, in the military. And now one thing I noticed, uh, and I just saw this at Pordenone last year, is uh, Frank Borzaghi's The Lady, um, which is right before kind of his peak period with Seventh Heaven and um, Street Angel and things like that. And to me, clearly seems, you know, he's... He's pretty darn good by that point. So, um, you know, very powerful film with Norma Shear and Norma Talmadge, uh, some Norma in it. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. And we had preserved, the library had preserved it uh, about 30 years ago, but it was missing one of the reels. And the reel showed up in another nitrate collection. So this is the first time with this restoration that the film has been able to be seen complete. And it's a, just a beautifully done film, and she gives an incredible performance, which is as much a tribute to Borzaghi's skills as a director as it to her as an actress. Yeah. Yeah, so that's from Library of Congress, but I see a lot of the other titles are from other archives, Museum of Modern Art, uh, UCLA. Uh, one is on DCP from Universal directly. So um, part of it, I'm sure, is meant to like show off what people have been working on at library of Congress, but not only that. Correct. Correct. We, we are so active in uh, distributing the films that we work on that it's hard to identify 
I didn't want to hold back lots of films and premiere them at our festival. <laughs> and I also wanted to showcase some less than familiar films that are uh, from other archives. So, for example, the Museum of Modern Art has uh, done restorations of the uh, several early Fox movie tone newsreels from 1927, and we'll be screening those. Hmm. I don't know. What, what else uh, are you excited about bringing to it? <laughs> Well, I'm excited that um, we're showing uh, State Secret, which is a Launder and Gilliatt film. They were the screenwriters on uh, The Lady Vanishes and uh, Night Train to Munich. And State Secret from 1950 is another in that kind of the Hitchcockian, the innocent person gets pulled into the, uh, uh, in this case, a coup in a uh, Central European country. And... It's it's a fun film. It's very seldom shown, and as part of the production, they didn't. The Cold War was on, and they didn't want to use, say, Romanian as the native language for that country. So they went to a professor and had them create a language for them <laughs> to speak in the film. And in his autobiography, Jack Hawkins talks about how impossible it was to learn the <laughs> script for those sequences. So he had it written on the desk and, you know, hanging from the camera and right. everywhere so that he could do his lines while he was doing the takes and found it very, very frustrating, but it works just fine in the context of the film. We're also going to show a, uh, a two real musical comedy short from 1929 that was produced by Fox called Bell of Samoa, which is on YouTube, but that's off 16 millimeter. Our copy is off of nitrate with a bit of 16 millimeter from Ralph Celentano's 16 millimeter print. And uh, it was advertised as the first musical comedy on film. And it was actually photographed for a Fox movie tone follies. And then they released it as a separate short. Um, but that, that's a lot of fun. And we're showing our beautiful print of WC Fields in Sojour Old Man. Uh, we did a restoration of an all black cast film called Dark Manhattan which is about the numbers racket. And it shows that it is possible to get pretty close to making a Hollywood style movie on a very, very low budget. Right. And I'm really happy that Maya Cade of the Black Film Archive is going to come down and introduce the film for us. Okay. Uh, and we have some unannounced uh, films. In addition to Carnet de Cabaret and Melody Cruz, we're going to be showing Howard Hawks Stealing Zero, which hasn't been on TCM for about 20 years. And a new Mary Pickford Foundation restoration done in conjunction with the Library of Congress called Johanna and Liss, directed by William Desmond Taylor. And Mary Pickford is supported by Wallace Beery, Monty Blue, and Douglas McLean. And that, that's a delightful and charming uh, film that required quite a bit of restoration work because all that survived on it were some 16-millimeter prints. So a lot of digital work to get that, to rescue that title. Are a lot of these things, you know, things that are going to be coming, uh, you know, wet out of the process, <laughs> you know, somebody <laughs> running to the theater with a, you know, their their brand new print or whatever, or is it, uh, you know, the, mostly things that have kind of been on hand for a while? Uh, well, a couple of things have been on hand for a while. We have a beautiful print of Craig's wife, the Dorothy Arzner film with Rosalind Russell. Um, which has been loaned a bit, but not seen a whole lot. We have a 30-year-old print of Frank Capra's Submarine that's actually absolutely gorgeous. Right. And um, 
I saw it when it was shown in our theater and thought, kind of get it, get that in front of an audience. And then we have a film foundation funded a restoration of a 1926 John Stahl film called Memory Lane, which with uh, Eleanor Boardman and uh, Conrad Nagel, which to me is like a precursor of the crowd in terms of uh, talking about the paths that your li- lives could go and how those choices influence the rest of your life. And that's going to be our uh, Friday night uh, screening. And it's just a, it's a beautiful print. We borrowed the Warner Brothers negative uh, to make the prints, and it goes over extremely well with an audience. It was the hit of the John Stahl cycle when, at Portnone several years ago. Yeah, so, I mean, for the silence, who's you have accompanists planned, I assume? Yes, we do. Uh, John Marsalis is going to be one of the guests of the festival, and he's going to be playing uh, most of the silent films. And then um, we've asked uh, Ben Modell if he can come in and cover some of the films uh, also. Okay. So it'll be familiar and very experienced to companies. Right. <laughs> Our special guest is going to be the four-time Academy Award-winning sound designer and sound mixer, Ben Burt, who you know, worked on Star Wars and sure. Jones, E.T., uh, WALL-E, and... Um, we're really excited that he's going to come and be talking about music and sound um, and his career. He'll be doing two different events with us, um, a presentation on the history of motion picture sound and sound effects. And I've seen Ben's presentations at the Turner Classic Movies Festival, uh, where he often presents with Craig Barron. And he can listen to a sound effect (laughs) and trace back the other films that sound effect was used in and which film it was originated in. Um, and he has examples of, of that kind of reuse, the Wilhelm scream right. <laughs> is probably the most familiar of those. But the, the sound effects have you know, influenced like what we think a uh, rifle shot sounds sure. like, you know, where if you ask someone, well, it sounds you know, like all echoey and everything. Well, maybe if you shoot it in a canyon, and have the mic set up in the right place. Um, so that that sort of history he'll be talking about. And then he's going to show uh, Spy Smasher Strikes Back, which is his recut of the 1942 Republic serial. And Ben is one of many who you know, really loves Republic pictures. And he worked with Paramount to be able to access the 12 chapters of the serial. And then he cut it down to a 93-minute uh, action picture, which he has edited a number of uh, theatrical films in addition to doing the sound. Right. And he laid in, you know, extra fight sequences from other uh, pictures, um, other music from the Republic Music Library, sound effects from the Republic Library. And he says he was able to you know, really pick up the pace of it and do everything except character development because you can't really (laughs) build character development just by the way you've edited the film. But it's kind of an object lesson in the role of editing in uh, communicating a narrative. And it's really interesting to see the way he's taken a, you know, 2020s um, view and tools on the raw material from the film from 1942. So that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, for the audience. 
And then uh, we have a separate event where he's going to be talking about his career and be interviewed on stage by the Motion Picture Academy's Randy Haberkamp. And then um, also have an audience Q&A. So talking about, you know, how he got into the business, uh, various people that he's worked with, how he came up with the sound effects like the lightsabers and R2-D2 and um, E.T.'s voice, which, of course, all of these are combinations of many, many sounds put together. Sure. The uh, voice of Darth Vader. And then we're going to, uh, after the audience Q&A, we're going to premiere uh, a restored chapter one of the Phantom Empire from 1935, oh, yes. the mascot serial, right. which is uh, not quite at the level of Buck Rogers and uh, <laughs> Flash Gordon, but it stars uh, Gene Autry, and it's a science fiction western. Yeah. And uh, yeah, with Fr- Frankie Darrow, um, and uh, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. So that'll be three reels. That, and that'll be the world premiere of our restoration of that. Nice. From the camera negative. Wow. So All you're re- nitrate. restoring the whole thing? Uh, we're restoring chapter one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then we'll, we'll see how it goes. We, the library is set up to do lots of preservation and a small amount of restoration. So um, we have to be judicious in the things we choose. Uh, to work on, but we'll we're, we'll see how chapter one is received. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a lot of fun, but no one's ever seen a good copy of it since right. the original release. All right, well, let's get down to the nitty gritty here. What's it going to cost to go to this event? The passes are one hundred fifty dollars for uh, screenings that start Thursday night at seven p.m. and go till eleven p.m. on Sunday evening. So we think it's it's a real competitive price, particularly for people who live in Washington, D.C., right. for a weekend of uh, great movies, beautiful copies, and uh, you know, lots of fellow film fans. Do you have anything planned for you know just the general camaraderie of film buffs? That, that was one of the challenges, is, is how do we recreate, even on a small scale, some of that involvement? So what we're going to do is run some of the Hollywood home movies from the Motion Picture Academy and have people call out if they can identify the uh, people in the home movies. So that, that's a lot of fun because when you see someone out of context, um, you know, like Jack, is that really Jack Oakey? You know, I'm just right. seeing Jack Oakey in a movie, right? So um, we, we're going to do, do that as a, a group activity for identification and of course people can get the stars but they almost never can identify the directors yeah (laughs) true Links for the Library of Congress Festival of Film and Sound, June 15th through 18th, including info about tickets, accommodations, and programming, will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Every year, more and more silent films move into the public domain. The question is, what does that mean for the availability of silence on home video? 
One fear has been that the market would be flooded with poor copies, crowding the better ones out. That doesn't seem to be happening, as the bigger labels make a selling point of superior editions from the best vintage material. But the other thing we see, and we've talked about it here a few times, are what I call homebrewed editions, in which individuals offer quality editions of obscure movies, often via crowdfunding on Kickstarter, going straight to collectors to fund their work. Ben Modell has done many of these, so has Ed LaRusso, who started by trying to get Marion Davies' catalog out, and venerable Grapevine Video has done a number as well. April will bring us two new Kickstarter projects, a new one by Ed LaRusso and another one by Joe Harvat, who's collaborated with Ed and put out a couple of Olive Thomas titles in the past. I spoke with both of them about what they have in the works. We'll start with Ed telling us about his new project. Well, the next one is uh, a film from Columbia called The Unwritten Law. And it stars Elaine Hammerstein. She sort of was sort of a mid-range star of the, the teens and the 20s. And there's not much of her stuff out there. When I did a scan of the Library of Congress database to see how many complete films there were, I mean, I came up with, I mean, just looking at in the 1920s, I came up with a list of about 10 films, many of them not accessible but um, at least four in the Library of Congress. So, I mean, there's stuff out there, but it's not out there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and she is, I'm being told by Wikipedia, uh, the cousin of Oscar Hammerstein II. So, right, right. Uh, yeah, therefore... And her father was Arthur Hammerstein, who was a uh, stage producer. And actually, her first two credits uh, on Broadway are in shows of his what a coincidence, before yeah. <laughs> uh, she broke into, into films. So what's interesting about her to you? Well, I think just the fact that she's, you know, she is a Hammerstein and that she was, a, you know, a, again, a mid-range star. I mean, she wasn't, you know, a, a top, one of the biggest stars in the business kind of thing. But she worked for uh, Columbia, which, of course, was probably poverty royal in the 20s, and Selznick. And her, her, her slogan, because of course you had to have a slogan when she worked, when she worked for, for Selznick, she was Selznick's star without failure. <laughs> okay. And I'm not quite sure how to take that. And also she was one of the few, I mean, to my knowledge, one of the few Jewish um, leading ladies stars in films of the time the one the one thing that intrigued me about this one was that, <clears throat> that it was a fairly late film in her career um it, being 1925 and that when i got the information back from library of congress it was sort of interesting that it, it the their film element retained the original tint scheme of the entire film and that the film contains uh, sequences of Hanshiegel process, which is the hand coloring process, frame by frame by frame by frame, which, you know, I think until Ben Modell did the, the, the Restored When Knighthood Was in Flower a few years back, which also had some, some Hanshiegel coloring in it, 
Um, I, I was really unaware of this whole process. I mean, it, it, but it really wasn't, it was expensive. It was usually um, only used for big projects. And it just sort of intrigued me that, well, this is from Columbia. Right. You know, I mean, not, not a big studio with money to burn. So, you know, I went for it. And it's, it's, a, it's an entertaining film. All right. Joe, tell me about your next project. Our next project uh, is going to be a film called Lights Out. Uh, Lights Out was uh, originally released in November of 1923. Uh, it, uh, to, for, for lack of a better way to describe it, it's kind of a, a cross between a crime drama and a romantic comedy. <laughs> okay. uh, so it, it's a great movie. It's a lot of fun. Uh, uh, seven Reeler, so it's a, a full-blown feature. Uh, but uh, at the time, it was quite a, uh, a surprise hit. Uh, it uh, started its life as a kind of a programmer, as it were. Uh, but when it hit theaters, uh, you know, they originally booked it for uh, two or three days. And a lot of houses ended up holding it for a week or 10 days, which was kind of unheard of at the time. Hmm. Uh, so it turned out to be uh, quite a hit for uh, the producers, which was uh, uh, FBO Pictures or Film Booking Offices of America. And who's in it? There are no really big names in it. The biggest name that uh, probably everyone would recognize would be Ruth Stonehouse. And uh, uh, it's it's not, however, I, I wouldn't say that it's not a starring vehicle for her. Uh, it's, uh, it's kind of a, uh, uh, an ensemble piece. So how do you run across this picture? Uh, this is this is the real story here. I think uh, it all started off in like 2021, to where I was actually looking to uh, find a Betty Compson uh, title to do for Kickstarter, and uh, I started off with the Library of Congress, and they had a couple of titles, but uh, those were tied up because of uh, uh, some permission restrictions. So I started looking for uh, another Compson title and found one uh, with Goss Filmafond in Russia. Uh, it was called Kick In. And uh, I started talking with them uh, and was just about to make an arrangement to purchase a digital copy of the film uh, when uh, the uh, archivist over there wrote me back and said, Joe, I've got bad news. Uh, the film we have is not Kick In. Uh, it's this Ruth Stonehouse movie called Lights Out. Huh. You know, I was disappointed because I was looking for a Betty Compson movie, uh, and the significance of it really didn't hit me uh, immediately. Uh, but uh, we ended up talking to some folks, uh, uh, George Willeman in particular at the Library of Congress, uh, and uh, uh, they confirmed that it was lost film. So once we determined that this was something that, you know, there were no other copies of and it was considered lost for decades, uh, uh, all of a sudden the lights went on for me and I thought we, we need to pursue this. And uh, the really lucky thing was, is that we discovered that the Russians had actually gifted a copy of Lights Out uh, to the Library of Congress back in 2010. 
but when they gifted it to uh, LOC, uh, they still thought it was kick in. And apparently, apparently the Library of Congress never looked at it. So they thought they had kick in. So uh, when when they reviewed it, they said, uh, yeah, it's lights out. So uh, so we were able to secure a digital copy of it and uh, uh, with Cyrillic Russian titles and everything. Uh, and we were able to do the uh, the restoration work on it. And, and it went from there. When the the labels release things, they tend to be prestige pictures or they tend to be you know things tied to a famous director you know it tends to be the the sunrises and foolish wives and things like that um and what's interesting is the the way you do it which is just kind of poking around the archives looking for an interesting movie is you wind up getting exposed to a lot of i don't know kind of conventional commercial pictures but it gives you a real picture of the you know, what the industry and what audiences liked then, you know, what they would see on a typical weekend. And it's not, you know, Murnau came from Germany to make this movie for you, but, you know, it's more like, oh, look, another movie with Elaine Hammerstein. You know, we liked right. that last one. Well, I think what's interesting also, you know, when I grew up and would, was reading about these 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 people, uh, you know, like Viola Dana and Shirley Mason and, you know, Forrest Stanley and, you know, these kinds of people who weren't the megastars, but they were mentioned and that's, that's basically it. You know, you read their names in books and footnotes and that was it. Um, so when I started doing this, you know, outside of the, the Marion Davies stuff, I, you know, I realized that there were all, you know, these films of these other people were available. And I mean, I was, well, gee, I'd like to see one of, you know, a film from this person just to see, you know, why they were, you know, as big as they were. I, I agree. To me, I think that uh, so much of what movie making was about was was not about high art at that time. Uh, so much of it was, you know, get it in, get it out, and get it into the theaters. Uh, but at the same time, it, it amazes me, and in this particular film especially, that uh, they did this movie on a shoestring. I'm sure they probably didn't spend any more than, you know, maybe $50,000 on this film in total, if that. But they did a lot of really interesting, uh, what I think was fairly cutting edge stuff for the time uh, that really made this an interesting film and, and worth people seeing. Uh, you know, there were things here that I hadn't seen in film before of this time to where, you know, the idea of like very rapid uh, uh, cuts between film shots and and a lot of crossfading uh, between shots that I had not seen before uh, uh, to where even even crossfading into a, a, a title. Uh, to where uh, they were trying to like take the edge off uh, so that it was not such an abrupt cut between shots. Uh, so a lot of innovative stuff uh, and uh, just uh, different ways of doing things on, on a shoestring. But uh, I, I think to me, that's the thing that attracts me is, is that, you know, it, it's not all about Lillian Gish or Douglas Fairbanks. It was a lot of people that were in there, uh, toughing it out in the trenches every day 
and turning out really good entertainment. Well, it's interesting. It's, I see it's directed by Alfred Santel, which is not a name that I'm super familiar with. But one thing I do know about him is that Dave Kerr at MoMA is a big fan of his. You know, thinks he's he's one of those you know guys to watch out for if you, if you have a chance to see something. Um, I'm just looking to see what what he's best known for. I guess the patent leather kid with Richard Barthelmos is probably the best known thing that he's done. Anyway, um, yeah. So I mean, it's interesting to see him, you know, someone like that at work who you know is known to bring a little more to the party than many people. And and Santel was one who started off as a writer. Uh, in the early days, he was a screenwriter and and kind of graduated into doing direction. So I think that he brought that into it to where he had a great visual mind and uh, really had a good eye uh, for how to tell a story. And uh, I think that that shows through here. So, Ed, your print quality is good with the hand shekel color and all that. So at this point, it's what, just a matter of adding music? Uh, yeah, I've, I'll probably have David Drazen doing the music for it, and we'll probably add an extra. Okay. Yeah, which I've been doing on most of the projects. Not all of them, but most of them. Okay. And when, when do you think it'll go up? I think I'll, I'll be launching in mid-April. We generally run these, I mean, for only seven seven to 10 days or so. Yeah. It's a really long time when you run, run a, a Kickstarter campaign for, for 30 days. And after the first week or 10 days or two weeks, I mean, you, the return just isn't worth all that extra time at right. that point. Yeah. And Joe, what else goes into getting yours ready for release? Uh, boy, I tell you what, this was one, it, it was a little rough. Uh, you know, the, it was stored at Gosfilma fund and, uh, God bless him for you know preserving it, but was was not in the the best of shape. Uh, so we uh, we ended up having to do uh, we meaning me. I had to do a lot of restoration work on this, uh, and a lot of it is is uh, automated, uh, but a lot of it is also manual. So uh, you know between uh, you know going in and and taking all of the dust particles. And, uh, you know, uh, individual frames have deterioration in it, and it can be mind-numbing after a while. But uh, I I probably have, uh, without exaggerating, you know, hundreds of hours of just going in and cleaning up the movie. And uh, I I always tell myself that I'm the only one who's ever going to know, you know, all the work that went into it, because if you do it right, when somebody watches it, uh, you hope that they never see it, you know, that they never they can't tell the work that you did. Uh, so a lot of the work is is involved in cleanup. Uh, but uh, you're right, though, uh, going in and, and translating all the titles and recreating those, uh, recreating uh, uh, opening credits and closing credits that are uh, uh, somewhat like the, uh, uh, the what the originals may have been like. Uh, but, uh, and then of course, you know, getting with someone, uh, uh, David Drayson is the gentleman that we work with here, uh, generally to do the, the music. Uh, and, uh, he just delivered on a great, uh, musical soundtrack for me this week. 
so we're putting that together here. Uh, and hopefully we will have that ready to go for the Kickstarter uh, in the first week of April. Okay. Yeah, so you and Ed are sort of timing them to not uh, overlap with each other? Yeah, Ed and I, you know, we're, you know, we we work together so that we, we time our, our projects so that we don't step on each other. But, you know, Ben Modell is out there, and, and there are several other people now that are starting to do this. So the field is getting a little bit more crowded now, but but yeah, we try to to get it to where uh, people have the opportunity to support these things uh, and and not have too many of them going uh, concurrently. Yeah, well, it's a great problem to have, you know. Yes. Too too many choices uh, here. Now, the, the one thing too that I wanted to add in is that something different that we're doing this year uh, with Lights Out is we're actually going to premiere the film at the Columbus Moving Picture Show uh, at the end of May. So the, the actual film will premiere uh, uh, in Columbus, uh, and then all of the backers will receive their uh, uh, discs or downloads or whatever it is immediately following that premiere. But, uh, and David is going to be in Columbus to do the musical accompaniment uh, live for the audience. So uh, we're real excited. This is the first time we've uh, uh, ever tried to do that. And I think that's going to be very special. So Ed's been on the podcast. We know his story of how he got involved in doing this and really pioneered this whole idea of homebrew uh, video releases for silence. But uh, Joe, yeah, what got you interested in it? I'm an old IT guy. And, and one of the things that kind of drew me into it and I, is, is the idea of using technology to kind of restore these things. And, uh, you know, I always have, have taken it from the idea of how can we use software to help recover, you know, the quality of these pictures because they're so beautiful. You know, we can't all, we can't all have those beautiful Kino prints that, uh, that these guys work with. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, both Ed and I, we run into these things to where, you know, some of these things, like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do with this? You know, because it's a great movie, but it, it looks like, you know, uh, it's a snowstorm going on in the, in the middle of the film. You know, so, so trying to figure out how, how to clean these things up without going in and individually removing every little piece of schmutz that's on, on every frame here. You know, I, I tell my wife, you know, I thought there's a hundred thousand frames in this film. What am I supposed to do with this? But uh, you know, it it is uh, overwhelming at times. But uh, the technology is getting better, and I think that's the thing that's great about this is that it doesn't take uh, a, a team at UCLA to do this anymore. You know, you you get a you get a good gaming laptop with a good video card. And it's amazing the things you can do with one guy, you know, and I, I think to me that bodes very well for the future. One of these things here is that, you know, again, we uh, appreciate all of the support that we get from the silent film community. It's just, it's been, I think we're, we're all just blown away with how, how supportive people are. And uh, uh, just so everybody knows, there are more things in the works. I finally found my Betty Thompson film here, uh, <laughs> and I think that uh, 
that uh, we'll have that one ready to go by the second half of 2023 and uh, more things in the in the works for 2024 as well. That was music by David Drazen for Joe Harvett's release of 1919's Out Yonder with Olive Thomas. Links for Ed's Kickstarter for The Unwritten Law with Elaine Hammerstein and Joe's for Lights Out with Ruth Stonehouse will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. You two know the scene, don't you? It's when Timmy cuts yeah, the rope. Yeah, yeah. Are you sure this thing's tied off good? That rope that Timmy's going to cut is only a prop. Now, now quit never... worrying, will you? It's all right. Get set, everybody. Cameras. Action. Now broaden your sawing action. Now gnash your teeth. Pearl, Mike, you know you're going to die, but you're smiling at death. Okay, Pearl, a little sad now. Turn your head to the man you love. Now smile sadly. Swell, great. Okay, Timmy. Cut the rope! That's Betty Hutton as Pearl White in the 1947 biopic The Perils of Pauline. And believe it or not, this might be the most accurate scene in a heavily fictionalized biography. Pearl White really was cut loose in a runaway balloon during the making of 1914's The Perils of Pauline. White's name lives on as the epitome of melodramatic daring-do in silent cinema, but few have actually seen her, and even fewer know anything about her life and career. To her rescue comes film historian William M. Drew. The author of books on D.W. Griffith and the survival of silence after sound came in, he digs into White's copious and dubious publicity to tell the true story of a screen icon in The Woman Who Dared, The Life and Times of Pearl White, Queen of the Serials, from University Press of Kentucky. Well, first, what a great idea for a biography. I mean, someone who still has name recognition, and yet nobody, you know, who knows anything really about her? She never got the posthumous support from, to, that I can determine from the archives, you know, like the Museum of Modern Art, to any extent. I am convinced there are more Pearl White films extant than is even now believed. Uh, just to give you my theory, I think that... Given Henri Longlois and, you know, Paris, France being where she was, I think the, the, you could probably find the full Les Mystères de New York somewhere in the vaults of the Cinémathèque Française. I just can't believe they don't have it because that was so popular. But uh, that's my theory, at least. Right. <laughs> there was no biography as we know it. Uh, I mean, there were memoir, her own memoir, but that only covered the early part of her uh, life. But there was no comprehensive biography or autobiography, of course, you know, that 
She might have undertaken in her later years, but she did not. The one biography that was marketed as a biography, and now that's fifty over 50 years ago, turned out to be, as I mentioned, a work of fiction, complete right. fiction. <laughs> Uh, and it kind of threw me because the gentleman who wrote it did interview and correspond with a lot of people. And of course, yes, I know that Pearl White herself and publicity departments he worked with would exaggerate uh, <laughs> and embellish things. Right. And then other things you can certainly find out, like when you're reading about a certain action or stunt the publicity department sent out, and then you go to the fan magazines, which were actually more accurate in those days. And they tell you eyewitness accounts what exactly happened. You want to hear my about how I went about finding out what I did? Yeah, because I mean that was one of the questions that certainly struck me is there's so many publicity stories that just probably are not true. How do you write a biography of someone where most of your sources, you know, you have to approach them with a pretty questioning eye? But it, not only that, but I mean the whole thing is ultimately trying to find out who Pearl White was. Yeah. Uh, first of all, I'm dealing with someone who died, you know, in 1938. Right. And who left the United States in 1922, except for some three visits, uh, the late 1922. And it was never part of Hollywood, which in a way puts her at a distance in a sense that, let's say, a contemporary like Ruth Rowland is not, because Pearl White's film world, the East Coast film industry, died essentially in 1939 when, you know, Astoria and and uh, the other studios closed, uh, and then it was resumed a decade later, but, you know, that, that's a decade later when East Coast right. production resumed. How do you find out about that? How do you make it real? And, and what was she like and her motivations? Well, of course, the personal papers, in any collected sense, are, are not there, as far as I've been able to determine. Now, then you get into who, who was I in touch with. As far as I witnessed people who actually were in her physical presence, I got the most information from Gitzine Myers, the late Gitzine Myers, who uh, was her goddaughter and who had spent memorable time with her in, in New York in her last visit in 1937. Her parents were Gitz Rice, the Canadian songwriter, and Ruby Hoffman, a, a silent film actress herself who worked with Pearl White and was her closest friend. I also talked to Doris Eaton Travis, the late Doris Eaton Travis, of course, and about, and she was in the last film Pearl White made, and the uh, grandnephew and grandniece uh, of Pearl, and uh, was, um, and who gave me a lot of information about, including, you know, the contents of letters that they had, and, and that Pearl had written her brother, and, and uh, that sort of thing. You know, there are a few others, but it's interesting that the relationships that I uncovered. And uh, so, you know, there were all those aspects of her life. There's things we'll never know. I assume we'll never know. I mean, sure. you know, yeah. it's hard to say about all the motivations that she might have had. Uh, yeah, that can be a problem even with people whose lives are, are well documented. And remember, I wasn't working with a previous biography. A lot of biographies today... There was a solid biography. They may have a better uh, grasp or more information, but uh, but there still was a biography. I had to, to basically manufacture one out of yeah out of scraps and pieces. But of course, there are things that proved elusive. I'm sorry to say, like 
I couldn't find anybody to translate the Egyptian newspaper Al Iran. So <laughs> I, I, I'm sure there are things there that, uh, you know, at least socially, there might have been a few interviews. You know, I don't know, but uh, she did spend a lot of time in Egypt. But at least the French newspapers gave me a good uh, idea of her schedule. You know, and they'd say she came back from Egypt and that sort of thing. You know, and, and Pearl, by the way, was not much of a name dropper, really. In my opinion, from from what I see, by that I mean is, she will never say, "Oh, you know, I was talking to my friend Mary Pickford or right. the Talmud <laughs> sisters." She would talk about W. C. Fields, who, who at that time was not—I mean, he was known, but he was not a movie person. He just made two one-reelers, Pool Sharks, and and His Lordship's Dilemma. I think it was the one that's lost, and that was all. I mean, he was famous on the stage, but he wasn't the worldwide celebrity at that point. That John Bunny and Charlie Chaplin and uh, right. Max Linder were. So, no, she didn't talk that much about the film people, strangely enough, uh, that uh, she knew. So I know about her association with the Costellos from uh, from uh, Helene and the biographer of the Costellos, who kindly supplied that information in his, in his book, too. But as I say, she never went to Hollywood, and, and uh, uh, she headed the other direction. And I think, you know, that as I've said in the book, I think she, I think she probably, not that she was in any sense pretentious, but she thought it was kind of a, another small western town, you know, on the edge <laughs> of the desert. I think that was her view. Uh, and uh, originally, of course, the reason she didn't go there was just because, you know, she didn't she need to. She on the East Coast and yeah. she had other places to go in on, on her vacation, but... But, you know, the fact is she went to Palm Beach, not Palm Springs. Right. You've kind of sketched out, you know, aspects of a pretty exciting life there. So let's let's back up and kind of go through it for people. So she grew up in, you know, pretty much small towns in and around. Yeah, well, originally a village, really, Green Ridge, which was where she spent the first 10 years of her life. And then Springfield, which is a, you know, a... a medium-sized city, but, right. uh, but of course, not, not St. Louis. Yeah, and like many a young uh, small-town girl dreamed of being on the stage, something that would get, right. her, get her out of her small town, uh, yep. and was reasonably successful at it. I mean, had her ups and downs, but it sounds like, you know, she... Yeah, you mean the three years she was on the stage. Right. Yeah, I mean, the biggest success she had was as Jane Eyre. Uh, but, uh, you know, I mean, she wasn't a, a flop, but she she didn't become a name as such uh, uh, in the theater, obviously. But uh, she did, you know, learn her craft and, and that sort of thing. And then, of course, the problem with her voice. Right, well, t- tell me about that. Well, the thing was that her voice was... Uh, this is what was said, and I, I assume it was true that that she strained her voice, vocal cords, uh, and at, by the end of the run of her stage, it was starting to affect her. And certainly, getting into silent films was was you know a way out, uh, you know, solve that problem. Now, here's the interesting thing about her voice, which is, of course, that well, I've never heard it. You know? Sure, but, but well, that's another mystery to me that. Because she lived ten years into the, more or less into the sound era, and I have not had any definite information as to whether there might be some sound film newsreels or uh, 
radio broadcast or some other thing, you know, recorded like in France, where they might have a record of her voice. I do not know. Uh, I know that my dear friend, the late Marilyn Slater, who helped me with the research, and she was connected with Mabel Normand because Mabel's companion, nurse companion, was raised her. And so I got a lot of Mabel lesson lore from that. <laughs> and uh, and one of the most frequent questions they would ask Marilyn uh, is, you know, where's a recording of Mabel's voice? Well, there isn't any that we know. Of. And, but, of course, Mabel died in, you know, February, as you know, in February of 1930. And she'd been ill for the last couple, two or three years of her life. So, uh, you know, she wasn't about to either appear in any talkies or or be in a sound newsreel or, or have a, and radio was just sort of starting out at that time. So, you know, they just, there is apparently no recording of Mabel's voice. Right. Now with Pearl, I think there would, might be, but I have no evidence of that. So I have to go by what people said, probably would not have been consistent with, with her screen image, as I say, uh, because she was still too young to play character parts. And that's why when she did return to the stage uh, in the 20s, it was not in really dialogue. I mean, she probably said some things but in some instances, but it was not really, you know, dialogue kinds of plays. It was sketches that emphasized physical action that had been typical of her films, serials, and so forth, and... The, of course, a dancing sketch that she did again, and that was visual. Okay, so she gets into the movies, and there is that one early film that was found relatively recently in New Zealand. Yeah, The Woman uh, Hater. The Woman Hater. Um, yeah, what's her early career in film like? How did it progress? Uh, it, it progressed pretty steadily. Uh, she was, as I say, she started with The Powers Company. And I have tried to straighten out her filmography because, believe me, it was messed up. <laughs> you know, they've attributed all these films that she was making at Pathé in 1910 as well as Powers. How was I to know? I actually thought maybe she was running around from New Jersey to the Bronx or something. Right. You know, and <laughs> one day it, it looked like that. Well, eventually the facts came out. Joseph A. Golden directed her Powers films, apparently all of them. But then, of course, when she left Powers, she went to Lubin. But then uh, she wasn't getting as much... Uh, it was something that come down from, from Powers because they weren't always as leads. But then she went to Pathé. That's when she joined Pathé. Uh, and Pathé was in, in the spring-summer of 1911. And she was there for a year. And then she left and joined Crystal. And her director at, at Pathé was uh, was Louis Gagnier, with assistance, of course, because at that time he didn't speak enough English. We so needed assistance to help director, uh, help direct the film. And then when they, she left, then she w went to uh, back to Crystal, and Joseph A. Golden had now assumed control of the new Crystal studio. And of course, you know. He, he got her back, and, and she did these both comedies and dramas there, and he was the director. But, you know, so I had to straighten out a lot of the chronology there, or the, or the filmography. But, as I say, she was successful at at, at uh, Powers. Now, the first films, of course, a lot of them we may never know, because 
they were not giving out, as was true for quite a while, of these. They weren't giving out the names of the players until about she joined them in March, and then it was about November of uh, 1910 that they be giving, began giving out the names of the players. And then, so that meant, though, that she was part of that first year of the star system in 1910. And then, uh, you know, she was on her way to, to, to uh, Lubin, as I mentioned, and then she went to Pathé, and uh, then Crystal. And it should be emphasized, she was a star uh, before she made The Perils of Pauline. A number of sources have made out like, well, you know, she was either, she was a virtual unknown. Some some newspaper biographies, I think at the time of her passing and even later, made out like she made her debut in 1913, of course, which is not true. She, she started in 1910, you know, but The Perils of Pauline obviously was the turning point. Yeah, so how did she, how did she become a serial star? Was she already doing kind of action-type things in these comedies? Uh, Well, yeah. I mean, of course, to some extent, who wasn't? (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) Uh, But but they were mentioning her in in that context uh, when she was, by the time she was a crystal. So, uh, but I think, of course, now the story that she dreamed up about her being in the circus was something I think she deliberately pitched to, to the people, you know, when trying to get this action part, you know, she told, she would have probably told me, you know, I was a, you know, a circus acrobat, so I can do, you know, any kind of stunt you want. Right. I mean, of course, the way she told it is, you know, that they presented her with all these scary <laughs> plot and, I, and that sort of thing. But, uh, you know, I mean, I don't, but I think she probably had said and done enough that it would have uh, recommended her for the part. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyway, the, the show there she was on her way, and, and of course that's what made her the the iconic uh, figure that she became. Yeah, did The Perils of Pauline take off right from the start? Was it an instant Right, yes hit? it was. And uh, it marked, and this is a nice little segue into Miss Gabriel, with me had on the other day, with respect to Marion Davies, is that this marked Mr. Hurst's initial entry into film production, The Perils of Pauline. He gave it the title, uh, as a matter of fact. And that, uh, that's one. because he wanted to publish the story alongside yeah. the movie in, in that's his right. newspapers. Charles W. Goddard was was the person that became, wrote the stories, but then, of course, they would be broken up into, I mean, you know, the script itself would be uh, worked on by... Um, Basil Dickey and uh, you know and and George B. Seitz came in as as the scriptwriter and writing titles and so forth. I've noticed though, of course, that there are differences often between what was in the newspapers and then the subsequent novelizations and what's on the screen. And so I suspect that there was a certain amount of improvisation, as was true in those early days. Sure. Yeah, she's pretty much instantly what she still is today, which is like the symbol of that sort of That's right. action female in, who, you know, is self-reliant yeah. and, and all those That's things. Right. So, yeah, tell, tell me more about her stardom at that point. Well, I mean, her stardom, you know, it was immense, and it only got bigger. I mean, you know, The Perils of Pauline was, was just the start, and the 
exploits of Elaine, and that did even more to han- enhance her internationally, I would say. Uh, and, uh, you know, the French, she became the absolute goddess there, you know, and, and was, you know, a strong influence all over the place. And, and you know, the whole French culture went wild over her. And, uh, and, and this did not happen in the United States, as I indicate, to, to the same extent at all. Uh, I mean, she was appreciated within her own profession. She was admired greatly. Then you start talking about the directors who, who fell in love with her, and that includes, or, you know, were inspired by her, and that includes, of course, uh, Yasu Jiro Ozu and uh, Sergei M. Eisenstein and Jean Renoir. Yeah. And so you, 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 there, there's all this influence and, and impact, and uh, uh, it's a it's mania, really. Yeah. And of course, Pathé did help. I mean, the fact that they had the international distribution, and she would have been known internationally before Charlie or Doug or Mary, as a matter of fact, in many places. Yeah. No, I thought it was interesting. I mean, it's maybe the first example of th- something we saw more and more as we got exposed to more like French writing on cinema uh, and on American cinema in particular, you know, in America, she's famous, but she's a little dismissed as, you know, I don't know if it's like thought of as kitty stuff or what. There was later on, as I pointed out. Yes. Uh, I mean, she got good reviews in the trade publications and the fan magazines, but if you're talking about was she ever given the kind of reviews in, uh, well, first place, you're talking about serials, and that, that right. itself, I mean, any, until she went into features, yeah, uh, of course, and that didn't get much, you know, that's not going to get as much attention from critics by the very nature of, of the genre, I suppose. Right. Uh, but, you know, I, I contrast the, the attitude of Rachel Lindsay to the films in general, you know, and serials in general, with Apollinaire, you know, Guillaume Apollinaire in France. And it's right. very different, you know. Rachel Lindsay said, you know, well, you know, what is that? You know, we, we need a, uh, it's just a diversion or something, you know. And, and, yeah. uh, and uh, Apollinaire, well, he has a whole different view, you know. Yeah, it seems like they they understand that there's a new medium here. It's not just we're filming plays or whatever, but but that kind of motion and action is a different thing. And, you know, so they appreciated it. And I think, you know, like the serials of Fouillard are, you know, another continuation of that. Um, You know, so, so they're like clued into it in the same way that later on yeah. they're going to be going nuts for B-movies by Edgar Ulmer or whoever. When... Yeah, oh yeah, that's decades <laughs> later. But yeah, Right, but the Americans are some... scratching their heads at, you know, why do they like that? <laughs> yeah, well, and don't forget who dreamed up the name film noir. Right. Of course, though, the irony of this is, though, that in a way Pearl, if you're talking about retrospectively, was left behind, I think, in France. After World War II, and when she was, of course, long gone, uh, because then they rediscovered Fouillade at the Cinémathèque Française, but they did not, unfortunately for, for me, yeah. uh, rediscover Pearl White. Uh, and uh, uh, they were trying to reclaim that aspect of the uh, their own heritage that had been might have been neglected. But as I said, the for whatever reason, they, they did not 
revive it and, and uh, you know, and then political problems would not have led to any revival in, in countries where she had been so popular, uh, you know, Russia and China at that time. Sure. And, uh, but, both, but it's interesting that both Russia and China, oh boy, was she influential and popular. And, you know, I quote that. And and she was the new woman, you see. They they saw that, and, and that was what appealed to them. Well, yeah, let's, I mean, let's talk about her personally. I mean, she she was very progressive-minded, yes, a suffragette. Yes, I can gather. Yeah, um, I mean, she, she clearly, you know, sort of took on this new woman role happily. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. And, yeah. you know, talked about it in the press and stuff like that, and didn't seem to suffer any particular repercussions no, I don't think she would have. I mean, necessarily. I mean, it depends. Now, it is interesting. I didn't comment on this in my book. But going through the newspapers and magazines of the period, or, you know, and things, uh, a lot of the, a number of the actresses were reluctant, actually, to uh, comment on suffrage and, and so forth. Uh, and I think there might have been well, maybe they just weren't at that point as interested or, uh, of course, in the case of California, women got the vote early, you know, by 1912. So it was not as much of a burning issue for uh, uh, for them as it would have been for people on the East Coast. And remember, Pearl was on the East Coast. Right. Although Mabel Normand was quoted as saying, hell, she'd been in California where women could vote. Now she's in New Jersey <laughs> working there and she can't vote, you know. Right. But uh, – it was, uh, but still, I would say it was. And Pearl herself admitted she she had not been uh, interested in in suffrage particularly. You know, she thought it was kind of funny even uh, until she saw the big suffrage parade in 1915. You know, and then there were other things such as I've talked about her sympathy for the immigrant on the East Coast, which of course you know well that was a burning issue in those days. Sure. And then, of course, she got in, involved in the actor's strike. Well, a lot of people did. But what I thought was intriguing about that was the actor's equity strike was since she was primarily a film actress, uh, she was the only one with a really whose reputation based uh, that I could find whose reputation was based almost entirely on films who became active in the actor's equity strike. And she was quite prominent in it. You know, it's interesting. I, we just marked the centenary of Wallace Reed's death. Um, yeah, and I got a little whiff of the studios kind of working her to the bone a bit. Not quite as bad as as happened with Reed, but you know a bit of that. Um, yeah, and she seems to be getting kind of tired of her career. A lot of a lot of yeah. complaining about, or I'm kind of complaining, kind of oh, I I can't wait to just you know live on a mountaintop somewhere, you know, sort of. Yeah, well, the whole thing was, first of all, Pearl White was was never part of what we call even not only Hollywood. She was not really part of the big studio system as we know it, certainly not in the... Right. Although, in a way, she was starting to get some of that when she moved to Fox. Now, the whole thing with the move to Fox, of course, is that she was defined as the peerless, fearless girl. Now, she helped create that. There's no question that she did that, um, that she, but, you know, when you start getting defined in a certain way, right? same thing with Mary Pickford to give America sweetheart, except in her case, she did have control on, on a certain level of, of what 
of what she was doing because you know she was the creative head you know of all of her things and then of course you have the it girl clara bow clara bow is forever the it girl right sometimes it can become really problematic because either they, they will if people start to think you are like that person in every respect then it can you know either like with clara bow you can oh she's really like that or maybe yeah. she was but you know you, you know what i mean it, it, yeah it, then that leads to gossip uh, about their personal life with Pearl White, not so much in the same sense, but she was supposed to come on and do all these things, and and people expected that of her. Well, yeah, and she, you know, she's taken it pretty hard by their mid twenties or so. I mean, she's she's had a number of accidents in the course That's of right. making the films. Yeah, now of course we get to the issue of you know doubles and and the whole issue of how much of that did she do. I don't. I put in every instance in which there was a double that is credible, and you know all that. But of course, I also I didn't mention this specifically, but I in in the book. But I would often find someone, you know, declaring years later, it could be a woman, it could be a man. I doubled Pearl White. You know, I mean, there is there's very little evidence there's no convincing evidence that they were even near you know yeah. <laughs> where she was people would say that because they want their frankly their 15 minutes of fame so you know they could say i double pearl white or something but you know it went into the but with pearl white got into the extreme either everybody in everybody in, in in the world was doubling her or else she did every single stunt you know and and it got to be, you know, obviously I think the truth is between those extremes. Right. Well, and we know there was a double because there's that one guy who died. Yeah, well, yeah, in, in we know about that, unfortunately. That was the whole, that was, that was really the cruelest blow of fate, if you will. I mean, in, it, certainly, well, for him, obviously, but, yeah. but for her, too. But, you know, that was, people were now questioning her. And remember, as I talk about in the book, in the teens... The press and the movies were very close in the teens. That's my impression. Uh, I think it's fairly obvious. Pearl White's divorce, which could have been in many quarters a scandal, a divorce in those days, it was in the press, but as you know, the first one in 1914, and just disappeared, just totally vanished and from her publicity and, and all that, and, and it was never heard from. And uh, she pretty much kept a tight control about, uh, well, I don't think all by herself. I'm sure it was with the help of the studio. Uh, but they were able to uh, keep things from getting out of hand or, you know, you know, she dated Frank Moran, and the boxer. Right. And then that sort of disappeared. And, and, and you know, other things would, would come up. And Well, yeah, and the surprising one was the Marquise de la Falaise who eventually marries Gloria Swanson. I guess I guess she's the the younger, newer model that he turns to after Pearl. Yeah, I don't yeah, I don't know if he if they thought of it that way. First place, I don't know how serious the the involvement with, with Pearl was, because he was also of course dating one or both of the Dolly sisters at the same time. Uh but but Still, I mean, Pearl White was the big star, and then then along comes Gloria Swanson, and uh, that was something that, interestingly, has never been had never been mentioned in in all the uh, biographical autobiographical writings of, of Gloria. They were um, 
obviously friendly, but then uh, you know, I have no idea how far it went. The most enduring one clearly was with Theodore Kazika, but he didn't talk about it to his when he married, and so his children. So I mean, <laughs> I'm friendly with his son, but he's learning about <laughs> about all this me right, as yeah. far as the what details there are it never came up in, in any interview that i ever saw now maybe someone asked her that and she didn't reply and so it never got on the record but uh, well and by know, that point she was basically retired too so well yeah but she did give interviews so she wasn't someone that just vanished and went into obscurity or, or something like that. I mean, she remained a celebrated ex-star, let's say. I mean, right. you know, there were a lot who just disappeared from the face sure. of the earth, like Edith Story, who was a big name at one time. And then, you know what? It took years to even find out when she died. No, I kind of thought of you know, Pearl's life as being sort of like, you know, like Mary Pickford or Colleen Moore a few years earlier. I mean, or there later, she's earlier, where it's just like, I've been working hard for 20 years, I'm and I've got money, I'm ready to be done with this. Yeah, but as I say, she tried to make the change with Fox, and I've gone through. Now, of course, the sad story is that none of the Fox films are around. Sure. At least they're not believed to be around, let me put it that way, because... Uh, Presumably, the the infamous Little Falls, New Jersey fire uh, would have destroyed them. Uh, all all the copies occurred in 1937, and since those were East Coast things, at least if they'd been in Hollywood, they might have had a, copies in the Hollywood Fox's Hollywood studio. But they didn't. They were a varied lot. Now, the one, if you're, I would say, one of the top films I would wish they would find for anybody would be A Virgin Paradise, which is really a a wild kind of, from from the descriptions of it, a wild kind of satire, you know, and on lots of things, and uh, you know, gender switch and the whole bit, and uh, to the taking it to the extreme, and, and that was the only Pearl White feature that ever got reviewed in the in New York Times twice, too, not once but twice. But then the others were kind of they parallel some of the society dramas. Gloria Swanson was doing, but were not presumably not in the same league aesthetically. If, you know, if I'm to compare what, well, there we have them. And, you know, the film she was doing with DeMille. But, uh, you know, but I do want to talk maybe a bit, I don't know, you know, you can always cut this, about her off screen. Now, of course, one of the things we know about her is uh, her <laughs> decidedly, she was. Uh, shall we say, flamboyant or something, she was. Uh, well, you know, I've, I've decided from my research, and including personal, there, are two, there were two type of women in the silent, or girls in, the, in America. There were the Buick girls, and then there were the Stutz girls. <laughs> <laughs> now, the Stutz girls, uh, well, the Buick girls were very nice, and... Uh, <laughs> They minded their mothers, and they apparently didn't swear, at least not too much. They didn't drink, and they didn't smoke. Lois Wilson, Leatrice Joy, and, and Billy Dove, among others, were, you know, uh, well, Billy Dove, eventually Lois Weber got her to smoke uh, for for either the marriage clause or the sensation seekers. Before that, uh, Billy never smoked. 
And uh, she got hooked, she said, for a few years, but eventually, maybe a number, I don't know, but she made it to 94, but she eventually gave it up. Uh, She actually did. Uh, But, you know, I mean, but then we have the Stutz girls, and the Stutz girls include, of course, uh, Mabel Norman, Olive Thomas, and, and Pearl White. And they they smoked, they drank, they swore, and did a lot of other things as they tore around in their Stutz Bearcats over the speed limit. <laughs> yeah, there are definitely more cars in this biography than I expected to find in the biography. Well, of yeah. Actress. Well, that was she, Pearl White. You know, she, loved, she loved her brightly painted cars and speeding in them. So a lot of, yeah, a lot of traffic right. tickets in this book, too. So Well, yeah, actually not as, you know, I think she got not as many. Well, the champion was Ruth Rowland, by the way, uh, for any star, male or female. It was Ruth Rowland. I mean, Ruth got more traffic tickets than anybody in the entire history of motion pictures. <laughs> and, 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 and she didn't smoke or drink, by the way, but, you know, so she had her other vices or <laughs> excitement. Uh, but but uh, I think Pearl did wiggle her way out of some of these things with her, either her charm or maybe <laughs> something or in whatever it was. Uh, but, but no, of course, the famous story, yeah, should I tell it and spoil a little book, sure. was, you know, when she was in... in uh, a village north of Ithaca. And Ithaca is very important because everybody remembers her from that. And she was driving through, whizzing through Trumanburg in her Stutz, yellow Stutz Bearcat. And she got pulled over and uh, they put her into court and, and the judge was going to fine her $5. Pearl took out $10, handed it to the judge and said, keep the chains, whiskers. I'm leaving your goddamn town as fast <laughs> as I came in. The drinking thing, of course, gets into the more serious act, ultimately. I think she was primarily you know, a social drinker in the teens. Obviously, when personal troubles began developing in the early 20s, more and more with the failure of her marriage and, and different things, then she started drinking more. Uh, so, you know, but at what point can I say, when does a person evolve from being a heavy drinker to an actual alcoholic, and that that's yet another step, you see. Well, and I, I think by, like, modern standards, any social drinker of that time period is probably, would probably be an alcoholic today. Yeah, but still, you know, there are limits. You know, I know she was drinking because Jacques Charles mentions it. Again, it didn't disrupt her performance or anything like that. I suspect the drinking got worse, obviously, when she was no longer working. Right. And, and, and of course, in her case, it wasn't just for fun. I mean, it was the, the physical pain. And, the, the, you know, the grandniece said that her mother was shocked. You know, it's in the book. Come in one day and find Pearl totally inebriated, you know, in her hotel room. And uh, Gitsine did not remember any that. But as she put it, there might have been times when she was more in the old-fashioned sense of the word, gay than usual, you know. I mean, she might have been, uh, but uh, she was not, you know, you know, bombed, really, uh, when when Gitsine observed her. So the drinking was definitely a problem, because it's what killed her in the the ultimate sense, or in the immediate sense, of course, but she, she did have all these physical 
injuries that certainly did not make for a um, uh, pain-free life. Uh, but, of course, you know, I talked to about how her death was received, and it was not it was not painted as a tragedy or a grim kind of thing. Now, of course, you know the thing with Pearl White, and that's the one of the things Lola does on the book, is she did keep hinting at or talking about comebacks. It wasn't like she said, you know, that's it. There was part of her that kept trying to get back in or expressing a desire to get back in right up to the very end. And, of course, that's where I get into that strange screenplay, uh, which you may have noticed, disillusion or tre- screen treatment, if you will. And who wrote it? I, I think it was Pearl. You know, it, there's a lot of reasons to think it was, but, but you know, we just don't know Uh it's a mystery. Shades of the screenplay that Swanson starts writing in Sunset Boulevard, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but it's something that, uh, of course, and there were others, of course, that she talked about and even doing some radio. So, again, she had a voice that presumably could be heard. And right. She had thought of doing radio. But none of these things, of course, ever came to fruition. There was talk of it. She herself, as a spectator preferred talking she said she thought they were better and so it wasn't like she was sitting around saying oh we had faces then and now talk 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 no that wasn't her view at all but it was just you know and of course there was the ambition to be a director and that was something and and she wanted to make this film with an all apparently all asian cast Hmm. of course that would have asked a lot of hollywood to have a woman directing and any, and then to have actual Asians playing Asian parts. So you know, it was uh, it, it, obviously I don't know how far she went with it. Who she might have talked to her, she did. I mean, she she did have mood swings, you know. It seems, and she might, uh, but uh, and the drinking certainly contributed to that. You know, she she died in 1938. At 49, yeah. At 49. The stories regard her as something from the prehistoric era. I mean, it's, that, it's that sort of like, correct. they're all sort of like, you know, old men now will remember her. And it's like, it's only yeah, like, that, ten, that's kind of, that's it's like weird. 10 years earlier. <laughs> it's not yeah, that well, long. It's weird that they would say middle-aged men. I mean, was, was Carol Lombard a middle-aged, or men and women? Was Carol Lombard middle-aged? I don't think so. You know, right? <laughs> she would I mean, have had a problem. Or Barbara Stanwyck. I mean, you know, those were her. I, you know, they, they. She was their idol. So I mean, it is strange that they would use that, in that sense, that terminology, because obviously plenty of people were around who were young. Uh, I suppose if you're saying who would have been old enough to remember her, in the uh, when you're talking about 1937, 38. It's still only like 20 years since the perils of Pauline. It's not that long. But there was this idea. It was the past. And, you know, we were, the country was starting to go into a, a, an era of nostalgia uh, that is popular nostalgia for the past. And uh, sometimes it was fueled by seeing actual films. Uh, but it really waited until the 60s before you got nostalgia that was totally based on, or late 50s, that was totally based on films because of the sale of uh, certainly 30s films. Uh, and Pearl, of course, sort of became a central figure of that. But uh, yeah, So it is this odd thing where she's famous without being seen. 
The yeah, idea that, of Pearl White lingered and obviously produced two movies, the Betty Hutton biopic and the pretty terrible comedy. Well, of the if you want to count that, I did yeah. because it's not. Uh, well, right, but it's but it's her name being trafficked oh, yeah, with yeah, yeah. by that point. Uh, yeah, I mean, and that that's the difference between, the, as I mentioned in the book, between Valentino and Delon Cheney when they were the subject of biopics or biopics or however you pronounce it, uh, because you know the Val, there are all kinds of Valentino revivals, and there have been all, lots of Lon Cheney revivals too. So people could compare the original with with you know the actor pl- playing him or how he's interpreted on the screen. And, you know, there was some talk of putting out the Pearl of the Army at that point, but as I mentioned, but, but you know, that didn't, didn't go anywhere. So, yeah, it, it's a thing where people know the name, and they know her name better, you know, than when you are starting to talk about a younger generation. And certainly by the time the Betty Hutton film came out in 1947, then you were, you did have a number of younger people uh, young people or people, you know, under 30, let's say, or even under 35 by then, I guess, or 33 or something, you did have a number of young people who were voting age, draft age or whatever, right? who who would never have seen her on the screen or, or practically any of them except maybe for Chaplin, you know, who had revivals or Valentino or somebody. Uh, by then it's a whole uh, different thing. But... Uh, so then, you know, she did become a name that people had heard of who would not have heard of Anita Stewart or uh, the Talmud sisters or, or others, you know, to the same extent. Or certainly extent. The, the other uh, serial queens. I mean, the Ru- Ruth Rollins, well, yeah, Gra- that, that, Grace Cunards. I mean, they're they're not even remotely comparable no, to No, their names are not as well known as Pearl White. Uh, and so that did uh, keep the name alive, uh, but you know we did not get anything in the terms of. Uh, but there was no none of the big revivals of the actual films, and so people were. And, and as I say, that that's holding TCM. That that as far as I know, they have never shown any footage, even actual footage of Pearl White. Although of course she's been seen plenty of other places in terms of at least some footage. Like there was a documentary on Hearst, PBS, a recent one that did show footage from the Pearls of Pauline, but the Pearl, but it's never been on the, um, on the, uh, TCM that I know of. Well, maybe, maybe your book, you know? Well, I would hope so. I mean, I need exposure and that, (laughs) you know, uh, you know, people have to read it. And I think that also the archives should, should get copies of it and there are people involved in this and, Maybe that would bring more attention to them, you know, yeah. to her and and to what might be in their vaults, uh, you know. And as I say, I think there are uh, could be any number of films of hers. Of course, it's not just serials, but they do have a copy of May Blossom, and though that's not you know her normal role type of role, but May Blossom with the original colors and everything, and you can see footage from that on YouTube. Uh, I'd like to get a really good copy in circulation, in circulation, I mean, it exists, but of Terror, her final film, and the one, only one she made in France, in which I think she partly directed. So what do you think people today would get from seeing her? Well, I mean, first of all, you have to see her, not the right. you know, generation. Assuming they can in some fashion, yeah. Yeah, uh... 
I think that, you know, that they would be captivated by her and, and personality and all that. I mean, you know, and and that would be what would uh, uh, bring her into uh, renewed recognition. Uh, but as I say, you know, the the American silent serial, isn't just pro-white, has been neglected. I mean, really. Sure. And, you know, there you get, yeah, you get into the the snob aspect you know I'm glad they put out everything and certainly Fuyad but you know ah that's art with a capital A so they right. put that out <laughs> but you know well American silent serials you know yeah, they don't want to bother with them you know that that is the unfortunate situation which I hope my book would would uh, rec- would, would change The Woman Who Dared, The Life and Times of Pro-White, Queen of the Serials, by William M. Drew, is out now from University Press of Kentucky. A link and some clips of the real Ms. White will be in the show post at nitrateville.com. Thanks to my guests, David Pierce, Ed LaRusso, Joe Harvat, and William M. Drew, and to Rob Stone and Meredith Doherty at University Press of Kentucky. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Be sure to subscribe at the podcast app of your choice, and if you can, leave us a rating and a review at Apple Podcasts to help other people discover us too. Thanks.